Good morning. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come together to worship you this morning, and in doing so, we ask you to bless this reading of your holy word to our understanding that we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning's verse is John chapter 10, verses 1 through 6 and 11 through 15, if you'd like to follow along in your program or your pew Bible. I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them out, all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize the stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing. For the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rip. Two weeks in a row. It's good to be together. Um, it's always good, but it just, just feel the spirits, the spirits just here uh, this morning. At least I feel it. I hope you feel it as well. This is, uh, today's the fourth Sunday of Lent. Uh, Lent, of course, is the season in the church calendar when we prepare for Good Friday and for Easter. We've been talking a little bit about the broad themes of Lent, and specifically that Lent is a season when we often give something up, a lot of Christians, not all, but many, um, I'm going to give up chocolate for Lent. I'm going to give up alcohol for Lent. I'm going to give up eating meat for Lent, different things. Uh, my favorite that I hear about recently, I'm going to give up social media for Lent. That would be a good and hard practice, wouldn't it? Um, but, but we give something up. We sacrifice something. And it's not just because sacrificing something makes you more holy. Like you're not more righteous just because you gave something up. But we sacrifice, we, we give up in order to make more room in our lives and our hearts for Jesus, so that we can know him more fully and more deeply. It's kind of like removing distractions from our lives so that we can focus on him. 
And so during our sermons this season, we're giving up, as it were, misunderstandings about Jesus. To be really blunt, there's a lot of false teaching about Jesus that's very easy to find. Any, I mean, you could step out these doors. People love to talk about Jesus. Unfortunately, people don't always talk accurately or correctly about Jesus. And so we're considering what Jesus says about himself. We're giving up our insistence on getting to define Jesus as we want to define him, and we're letting Jesus define himself to us. Now, uh, this Sunday is kind of a continuation of last week's sermon. So last week we saw uh, these two both come from the exact same little chunk of text in the Gospel of John, chapter 10. Last week Jesus said, I am the gate. And we wrestled with the question that's a, that's a fair and a, a hard question. How can Jesus claim to be the gate? How can Jesus say no other path will lead to life? Only I will lead to true life. And that's a hard question. And if you weren't here, if you didn't hear it, you can go back on our website and you can listen to it. We hinted at the response, and we're going to dive more fully into the response today. And the short answer is this, that Jesus can only make a claim like saying, I am the gate, because of what comes immediately afterwards, the very next verse, when he says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus can only be the gate because he is the good shepherd. So this morning, we're going to think a little bit about what, what did Jesus have in mind when he used the language of shepherds. We don't have shepherds in modern culture. The closest we have is Ruthie Griffin's house down on South Street. She's got a couple of sheep. Uh, but other than that, we don't have shepherds, and we don't know what it means to be a shepherd. It's a picture that ancient people would have recognized immediately. There's an author named Leslie Newbegin. He was a British missionary to India for about 50 years in the 1900s. I'm paraphrasing what he wrote, but in one little reflection on shepherds, he writes about how we often have these misconceptions about shepherds. And we think of a shepherd as somebody who's very clean and their hair is recently washed and they're holding a little lamb and caressing it very gently. When in reality, an ancient person who knew a thing or two about shepherds would not have recognized that picture of a shepherd. We have, as it turns out, we've sentimentalized, maybe mostly through art, and actually some of that art is in this building, dare I say. Uh, we have sentimentalized the picture of shepherds to a point where it really doesn't look like an ancient shepherd. Now, there are whole books plural, books, multiple of them that have been written about ancient shepherds and, and explaining the metaphor of, of God as a shepherd and Jesus as a shepherd. We can't possibly cover everything this morning. I don't really know. I haven't read them. So, uh, But we're going to consider just one facet this morning of what it means to be a shepherd, one facet that might, that I hope, will help us to follow Jesus better. And what struck me as I started looking up the word shepherd, especially in the Old Testament, is this. That even in the Bible, and it turns out in ancient literature that's not the Bible, there were many ancient kings who used the word shepherd to describe themselves. Jesus was not the first person to call himself a shepherd. Ancient kings did it. Now, ancient kings wore a lot of different hats. They were judges, punishing criminals, Ancient kings were generals leading armies into war, like quite literally getting their hands bloody. Ancient kings were leaders. 
And they use the word shepherd to describe themselves. In fact, we see this in Psalm 78. It says that God chose David his servant and took him from the sheep pens, from tending the sheep he brought him, to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob. King David was a shepherd to his people. In the ancient world, when you talked about shepherds, you were talking about leaders. And it started striking this question in my mind. How does it change our understanding of even of God to think of a shepherd as a leader? The Lord is my leader. I shall not want. That strikes a different tone, doesn't it? You've never said Psalm 23 that way. The Lord is my leader. That puts it in pretty stark relief. And that may be a surprising image, and and especially when we think about Psalm 23, a famous shepherd image, we think about the first few verses, right? You lead me beside still waters into green pastures. It's a very bucolic scene. And we forget what comes shortly after that. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You know what a rod and a staff are? A rod is a weapon. It's literally a weapon that a shepherd used to fend off and to attack predators like wolves and bears. A staff was a tool for discipline. It's the big staff with the hook on the end, and shepherds would literally take the long hook, and they would hook it around a sheep's feet if the sheep was going in the wrong direction, and decisively, like firmly, not gently, yank the sheep back into safety. We forget about those verses, don't we, when we think about the bucolic Psalm 23. The Lord is my leader. Hmm. He gives me what I need in order to survive, food and shelter. He protects me from danger. He bestows honor on me. That's a pretty good leader, isn't it? When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, part of the image, not all, but part, and this is just the part we're exploring this morning, we could just as easily substitute and say, I am the good leader. I am the good leader. So if Jesus is our leader, it begs the question, what is our role? And the answer is pretty simple and it's pretty obvious. It's to follow him. The sheep, this is verse 4, John 10 verse 4, his sheep follow him because they know his voice. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, what he's saying is, you can trust me, I'm trustworthy, I'm a good shepherd, I'm a good leader, And the second half is, you can trust me, therefore, trust me. (laughs) Trust me. Follow me. I really do have your best in mind. I'm your good leader. I'm not a tyrant. I'm not out for myself like those other leaders. I'm a servant leader. So trust me and follow me. How much time do we spend questioning God instead of following him? Simple question. And to the degree that we choose to question God instead of following him, that's really a diagnostic. That's that's the degree to which we really don't actually trust that he is our good leader. We spend so much time questioning God. God, why would you do this? Why would you let this happen to me? Instead of asking God, what are you you doing through this? 
And maybe an even better question, God, how can I be faithful to you even in this season that I just don't understand? I'm not saying you can't question God. We have good, King David questioned God. Job questioned God, and Job was righteous. I'm not saying you can't question God, but we use questioning God as an excuse to not follow him sometimes. We demand assurances of him. God, if I follow you and obey you and give generously and like really truly sacrificially in a way that I feel it, not just kind of skimming a couple leftovers at the end of the month, I want an assurance that you won't let me go broke. Prove it. God, if I follow you and really obey you and and let you lead me and I start to work hard to forgive that person who deeply hurt me, and forgiveness is work, I know. To forgive them, what assurance can you give me that I won't look like a fool or a doormat or a pushover? Because love your enemies sounds good in a sermon, but it sure does sound foolish in front of my friends and family. God, if I follow you, and I work really hard to be patient with my kids, and that is hard work, I know. And I work really hard not to be overbearing and overly controlling, and I work hard not to exasperate my kids. <laughs> what assurance do I have if I actually loosen my grip a little bit that my kids really will turn out okay? So often, we're so concerned about getting assurances and guarantees from God on our terms that we wind up not following him. And then, when we get into trouble because we didn't follow him, but we went a different way, we get upset with him. <laughs> Let's put it this way. Imagine you're driving. This is, this is autobiographical, and I'll share. But imagine you're driving late at night, and you're in an unfamiliar area, and it's rural, so it's dark. Would you rather have a good road map beside you or would you rather have a good local passenger, somebody from that town beside you who knows where he's going or where she's going? See, so often we tell God, just give me the road map. Just show me the whole lay of the land and everything that's going to come, and then I can choose the best way to get from point A to point B. Just show me the road map, God, and let me choose. But what happens when the map doesn't tell you something you need to know? like when the road is closed. Well, then I'll find my way around it. Well, you can. So three weeks ago today, we're on our way. It's February, beginning of February vacation, and we're driving to Vermont. And we're driving through Vermont to get where we're going. And we're following the GPS on our phone. This is, this is our map. And the GPS told us, in 1,000 feet, turn right. And in 1,000 feet, we turned right. And we turned onto Barber Farm Road, which is just south of Jericho, Vermont. And it was dark, and it was hard to see. And for some reason, I guess because it's Vermont, like this sudden snow squall popped up that wasn't in the forecast. And it's really hilly, hilly road. And, and so now there's hills, and it's dark, and there's snow, and we don't really know what's going. 
And of course, the GPS didn't bother to tell us that it was leading us through an area that had such a deep valley that we were going to lose the GPS signal. I would have paid really good money in that moment to have somebody from Jericho, Vermont, sitting right beside me and saying, Chris, you can turn right in a thousand feet onto Barber, Barber Farm Road, and it'll be a little shorter. And on a sunny, clear afternoon, that might be a pretty good, that might be a pretty good decision. And it will, it'll save you 15 minutes. But right now, with the weather and the light and the time of day and traffic, you know, you're really better off sticking on Route 15. And I know it's going to take you the long way around. You're not going to be able to cut that corner. But Route 15 is, is longer, but it's flat, and it's well-lit, and it's well-traveled, and it's well-plowed. Trust me on this one. You're better off taking Route 15. If you have someone in the passenger seat, you see, who knows the town, you don't need to know every road in the area. You just turn when they say to turn. And as an added bonus, now you don't have to suffer the anxiety of wondering if all of those turns really are going to land you in the right spot. Of course they will, because they know where they're going. But how often do we tell God, God, just give me the direction. I know you want to give me the directions. Just give me the map, and I'll figure it out myself. And then we get upset because the GPS loses its signal on Barber Farm Road, and we can't see a thing, and the snow is starting to pile up. And you say, God, why did you lead me into this? Did God lead you into that? (laughs) See, you insisted on your own way because you thought you knew the lay of the land. And God, this is important, because he is loving and because he is not overbearing or coercive or manipulative, let you choose. I'm the good shepherd, Jesus tells us. I'm the good leader. I know the lay of the land. I know where you're going to lose your GPS signal. I know when that road is going to be closed because they close it seasonally for snow because that's what they do in Vermont. I know these things. I know how to get you where you're going in the best possible way. And I know it's going to take you 15 minutes longer and you're going to wonder and question why I'm taking you the long way, but I promise you it's for your good because I'm the good leader. I'm the good shepherd. You can trust me. So trust me. There's one really important word in all of this that we haven't mentioned, and I don't want to skip over it. Jesus doesn't just say he's a shepherd. He says he's he's the good shepherd. Consider with me. Jesus doesn't just say he's a leader or the leader. He's the good leader. And I hadn't seen this, but a a number of commentators point out that that, uh, it's either three or I think it's four of the others. There's seven of these I am statements in the Gospel of John. And then I think it's four of the other ones. Jesus says, I am the true blank. I am the true vine. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the true bread, John 6. We're going to cover that in a couple weeks. I am the true light. And John 1, the true light that gives light to all men. 
And we would expect, knowing that, that Jesus would say, I'm the true shepherd, but he doesn't say I'm the true shepherd. He says, I'm the good shepherd. What makes him good? What makes him good? I want to just draw your attention to two things in this text. First, he calls his sheep by name. He's not distant. He's not impersonal. He calls his sheep by name. This is so simple, but the more you think about it, the more profound it becomes. Names matter. Names matter. And like remembering names matters. Dale Carnegie, is it Dale Carnegie or Carnegie? I don't remember how you pronounce it. How to Win Friends and Influence People. He wrote that famous book. And he wrote this quote. He says, a person's name is the sweetest sound. When, like when somebody knows you by name, it makes an impression, doesn't it? And by this point, I don't know why, maybe culturally, we've gotten to a point where we're not, most of us probably aren't that offended when people forget our names because how often do you meet somebody and they lead with saying, I'm not good with names, which is like a really nice excuse. I'm not going to bother to remember your name. But we're used to it. We don't get offended by it necessarily. But you know what we do notice? when somebody remembers our name. You notice when you met one person three weeks ago and then you see him again after three weeks and you've only met them once. And they say, hey, Chris, how's it going? Wow, you remembered my name. One of my seminary professors who taught pastoral ministry said very simply, and I haven't forgotten it more than a decade on, he said, leaders learn names. Leaders learn names. I'm the good shepherd, I'm the good leader, and I have called my sheep by name. Your name is a proxy for your deep core identity. It represents everything about you. So by saying, I have called you by name, Jesus is saying, I know everything about you. I know all your quirks. I know the way you know the quirks of your own family or your pets or your isopods or whatever it is. Like you, you know, when you know somebody by name, you know them. I have called you by name. I have called you by name. I know you. And verse 10, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I wish we had more time to really examine this. Um, Let me just tell you, for an ancient audience, most good shepherds probably did not willingly lay down their lives for their sheep. They knew that on occasion it might happen. They might be protecting their sheep from a predator and they were just on the losing end of the battle with the bear or something. But but shepherds did not go out intending to give their lives for their sheep. And yet Jesus says the good shepherd, the good leader lays down his life for his sheep. The good leader lays down his life. There's leadership lessons in here too for those of you who are in leadership positions and work. The good leader lays down his life for his sheep. Adam Grant is a professor at the Wharton School, School of Business and Management at University of Pennsylvania, one of the best business schools in the country. And he is emphatic about it. He's written several books about this. He says the best leaders are servant leaders. They're not out to get as much as they can for themselves so that they can advance, but they actually make sacrifices so that their team can thrive and so that their employees can succeed. And many of us probably resonate this. Either we had a really good example of it or a really bad example of it. Good leaders don't work hard to get ahead themselves. They work hard so that the people under them can succeed and get ahead. 
I remember this story, it's, it's never really left me, of a, um, uh, an employee. She had just gotten a big job at one of the big major three-letter three television networks in New York. And it was, it was just one of those career-defining hires. This was, this was going to set her up. And shortly into her work there, she made a mistake, and it ended up being a very costly mistake. It was going to cost the company six figures. She thought, ah, I'm going to lose my job. I just know it. And sure enough, her, not her boss, but her boss's boss called her into his office. And she said, I just know it. I'm gonna, and, he's, and he said, you know, I, um, most people would lose their jobs over this. But your boss went to bat for you. And he told me, I just, you know, she was newer and I just didn't train her right and I should have. And this was absolutely dumbfounding to this woman because especially in the, in, the, in the New York cutthroat business kind of media culture, you do not take the fall for somebody else. So she went to her immediate boss. And she said, hey, I heard you did this. And he said, yeah, don't worry about it. But why? He said, I don't, you know, it's just what I do. Don't worry about it. And she pressed him. She said, no, like, I really, nobody does this. People take credit for other people's successes, not for other people's failures. And she wore him down, and finally he said, I, I did this because, and I don't want to, like, bludgeon you with this, but I'm, I'm a Christian, and I believe that my God was willing to make sacrifices for me, and so I want to be willing to make sacrifices for other people because that's what it looks like to me to follow my God. Wow. That makes a statement, doesn't it? The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The good leader lays down his life for his sheep. You know where I'm going with this, right? In less than three weeks, we're going to observe Good Friday when Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, gave his life as a ransom for many for the forgiveness of sin. You and I are the sheep, and Jesus gave his life for us No other shepherd goes out intending to lay down his life for his sheep. And Jesus came in order to give his life for his sheep. Why? So that we could thrive and flourish and find our true life in him. How can Jesus say, I am the way? How can Jesus say, I am the gate? Because I am the good shepherd. Jesus, our good shepherd, has withheld nothing on our behalf. And so he asks very simply, why are you withholding from me? Follow me. Follow me. We needed a good shepherd, you see. We were lost in the hills of Vermont without a GPS. And God sent his son to be the very servant leader, the servant shepherd that we needed. Just over 500 years before Jesus was born, God spoke to his people Israel through the prophet Ezekiel. And I want to read this as we close. And listen to what God says. This is uh, from Ezekiel 34. You can flip to it if you want, but I'm going to jump around so you'll have a hard time following. But just listen to God's words to his people Israel, keeping in mind that in 500 years he was going to send his son. The word of the Lord says, woe to the shepherds of Israel. Woe to the shepherds of Israel. That's a curse, by the way. To the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. You eat the curds, you clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. 
You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. Because my flock lacks a shepherd, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from the hills of Vermont. Excuse me. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Will you follow that shepherd? Usually at the end of a sermon, I pray. This morning, instead of praying, I want us all to pray together. And the form that our prayer will take will be um, a recitation of Psalm 23. This is printed in your program, and we've printed the King James Version. I know a lot of you have probably memorized Psalm 23 in the King James, and so uh, many of you might not even need this. But as a collective prayer and a recommitment to follow Jesus, our Good Shepherd, Let's all join together as we say Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.